Last month, Ahmed Al-Faqi, a member of the Malian jihadist group Ansar al-Din, was arrested in Niger. And then he was handed over to the ICC, where he was charged with deliberately destroying religious monuments in the historic city of Timbuktu. The court's chief prosecutor called the destruction a callous assault on the dignity and identity of entire peoples and their religious and historical roots. So I suppose I wanted to begin today with a caveat, really, which is that I'll be talking about the Islamic State, but many of these observations apply to the phenomenon of jihadism as a whole and its current ideological direction of travel. So I'm going to discuss two things, two features of the Islamic State which mark shifts and make it different in significant ways from Al-Qaeda and other groups which came before. The first factor that I'm going to consider is the extent of its puritanical Sunnism. So, ISIS rose to prominence in a markedly sectarian climate in Iraq, which involved, firstly, a major local and regional reconfiguration of power through the Iraq war, and in geopolitical terms, the bottom line was that the main, the main beneficiary was Iran. That reality reinvigorated sectarian narratives, it intensified pre-existing Saudi-Iranian competition, and exacerbated Sunni-Shia rivalry throughout the region. Secondly, post-invasion Iraq became the womb for a virulently sectarian strain of jihadism, which a decade on has gained considerable ground from Afghanistan to Algeria. And finally, the post-Saddam political order attendant to the invasion had and still has many pronounced sectarian characteristics. And that was particularly the case under the premiership of uh, Nouri al-Maliki. The effect of all of this has been to yield an ideological phenomenon that is obsessed with local come doctrinal enemies. To begin with, the ideological basis of ISIS is distinctly and unabashedly anti-Shia, and this has replaced fighting the West as a raison d'etre for jihadism. <laughs> ISIS is built on a worldview that was elaborated by a Jordanian national, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who described the Shia using uh, genocidal language, in my view. Just some quotes from Zarqawi. Now, as an outgrowth of this intellectual movement, ISIS's literature dehumanizes the Shia as filthy mushrikeen and regularly derides them as rafida, rejectors of the truth, rejectors of the, the right path of, of, of Islam. Sabians, Magians, Safavids, and Nusariya for the Alawi. This is highly derogatory terminology. And actually, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, his November, November 2014 audio address, identified the Shia as the primary enemy. And this is how he describes ISIS's fighters. Those who humiliate the Rafida in their strongholds and their fortresses every day. 
how good you are. This ideological hatred of the Shia, which ISIS inherited from, from its predecessor groups, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the Islamic State in Iraq, is based on, firstly, their theological, supposed theological deviance and rejectionism, and secondly, the assertion that they're traitors and collaborators. And actually, ISIS's forerunner group, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, levied the charge of takfir. This is the notion of declaring another ostensible Muslim not a Muslim anymore. So one Muslim judging another, you're no longer a Muslim and therefore your blood becomes forfeit. I can kill you. So Al-Qaeda in Iraq levied that charge, very seldom used in Islamic history, against the Shia population in Iraq in its entirety because the Shia had supposedly collaborated with the US occupation. And it's worth mentioning, just comparatively, that this was not a road that bin Laden and Al-Qaeda wanted to go down, as we found out from many intercepted letters. So it's about ideolo ideology, but it's also very much a question of strategy. The idea is to co-opt the Sunni in Iraq and Syria by waging war on the Shia. And this was laid out by Zarqawi in 2004, when he described his strategy of drawing the Sunni into battle. So it's about triggering the Shia's rage against the Sunnis, forcing them to bear their fangs, and this will then tear the Sunni away from their complacency and draw them into battle. So ISIS's leaders have seen great opportunity for themselves in sectarian war among local populations, Iraqis and Syrians, and so we've seen the gradual localization of jihad. Whereas Osama bin Laden had tried very hard to mobilize globalized identities and to speak in the language of global politics, talking about the UN and lambasting the US for not signing Kyoto and that sort of thing, ISIS has focused for the most part on local identity politics. While bin Laden had taken great pains to deterritorialize and universalize jihad, ISIS has aggressively linked jihad to the acquisition and administration of territory. And this territorial project that defines ISIS ties it to a vision of society that makes dealing with bad Muslims more fundamental than attacking the West, if not more urgent. And on account of this localization, the targets of jihad have shifted. The enemies are new for jihadis, and they're right here. They're around you, they're among you. They're what, what I call the nearer enemy, elements of impure society. That is the main enemy now. As you well know, alongside its declared war on the Shia, ISIS has proudly meted out horrific treatment to Yazidis, Christians, and other minorities. It also doesn't even try to conceal its harsh treatment of Sunnis, whether from other hardline jihadi groups, ordinary civilians, tribes like the Elbu Nimr, or dissenters within its own ranks, including leaders. And as a result, ISIS has probably killed more Sunni than Shia. So the destruction of cultural heritage is part of ISIS's project for society, which involves realizing a uniquely puritanical Sunni vision and extirpating deviance and idolatry in the process. And it seems to me, I'm not sure about this, but it seems to me that bin Laden believed that if you go out and change the world around you, out there, you will eventually change society so that it more complies with God's law. 
But ISIS, on the other hand, believe that if you want to change the world, you must first change society. And that's what they're setting about doing in Iraq and Syria, whether by throwing homosexuals from rooftops, meeting out horrific punishments to Yazidis, or blowing up shrines and temples in Palmyra. So the puritanical Sunnism is the first element, a marked shift. Um, and the second, it's a very striking aspect of ISIS ideology, is its powerful eschatological component. Although a bunch of other radical Islamist groups and belief systems have included a millenarian strain, ISIS pushes to the fore the view of violence as hastening a new millennium. It's almost a hallmark. I'm sure some of you will know that Al-Qaeda popularized a quite obscure and disputed hadith. A hadith is a saying of, of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, they pop, uh, suppose it's saying, um, they popularized quite an obscure one, which referred to Khurasan. And this is a Sasanian name that's given to a region encompassing parts of present-day Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and crucially, Afghanistan. This is the hadith. Now, this hadith was the inspiration for Al-Qaeda's black flag and provided a rationale for its base in Afghanistan. These words appeared in Al-Qaeda propaganda and on sympathetic web fora. And um, when asked by his FBI interrogator why he thought Al-Qaeda would be victorious, Abu Jandal, a senior aide and bodyguard to bin Laden, recited these words in response. Um, this is taken from Ali Sufan's, uh, Ali Sufan's memoir. The Black Banner's Hadith also recalls one messianic trend which expects the Mahdi, the Redeemer, to appear with Jesus in Khurasan before the end of time to fill the world with light. So in order to bolster his moral authority to declare jihad, Osama bin Laden sought to exploit the fact that Khurasan has powerful resonance with many Muslims because of the messianic expectations focused on that region. However, bin Laden rarely made any direct sort of reference to the end times, the Mehdi, or the apocalypse. By contrast, a hallmark of ISIS ideology is an explicit preoccupation with these messianic expectations, but instead with a geographical focus on its heartlands in the Levant. One lengthy hadith attributed to the Prophet Muhammad references Dabiq, a town in northern Syria, where an apocalyptic battle will supposedly occur between the armies of Islam and Rome. The struggle ends with the arrival of the Redeemer and when, quote, the, army, the enemies of Allah see him, he will melt as salt melts in water. Now, ISIS propagandists named their recruitment magazine after the town. They regularly employed a 2004 quotation from Abu Musab al-Zarqawi about finally burning the Crusader armies in Dabiq. And in 2014, ISIS fighters battled ferociously with other Syrian rebels to capture the strategically insignificant town and then took to staging their beheadings of Western hostages there. Here we are burning the first American Crusader in Dabiq, eagerly waiting for the remainder of your armies to arrive 
one British executioner said to the camera. And there's an article in De Beek magazine which explores a series of quotations from the founders of ISIS and its predecessor groups on the signs of the hour. Certainly it was under the leadership of Zarqawi and men like Abu Ayyub al-Masri that this millenarianism became a defining character characteristic of the predecessor groups to the Islamic State in Iraq. Towards the end of the US occupation in Iraq, they saw signs of the end times everywhere and were anticipating soon the arrival of the Mahdi, the Redeemer. And when ISIS was founded, this in anticipation carried over. The official ISIS spokesman, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, promised that the Crusader armies will be defeated in Dabiq and ISIS will then have a meeting in Jerusalem and an appointment in Rome. Here, he may well have been referring to the belief, common in ISIS circles, that after the decisive battle in Dabiq, ISIS fighters will capture Jerusalem, the Antichrist will then appear and slaughter all but 5,000 of ISIS's men, who will ultimately be rescued by Jesus before conquering the world. Indeed, the seventh edition of Dabiq notes that the sword will continue to be drawn, raised and swung until Jesus kills the Antichrist. Thereafter, Islam and justice will prevail over the entire earth. And even the horrific practice of enslaving Yazidi women and children is directly justified with reference to the coming apocalypse. Another marginal hadith is invoked, which counts as one of the signs of the hour, a situation where a slave girl gives birth to her master. That justification was uh, spearheaded by Turkey al-Banali, a Bahraini national, and one of the rising ideologists for the Islamic State, but it ultimately boils down to this belief that a when a slave girl gives birth to her master, that constitutes one of the signs of the hour. I don't mean to over-dramatise the cultish component of ISIS or to downplay the reality that its leadership is comprised of a bunch of disaffected but highly capable former Ba'athists who want to grab and hold on to power. But I do think that this pronounced apocalyptic element is firstly quite new and secondly, a very important enabler of ISIS's destruction by virtue of the belief that even if, it's even if it's only shared in a small wing of the Islamic State, and there probably is a, a power struggle there between the rational actors and the apocalyptic ones, but it's by virtue of the belief that the most profound devastation creates new hope by hastening messianic intervention. So um, how are these two developments that I've discussed, the puritanical Sunnism, sectarianism, and the millenarianism, how are they linked? Well, if you're not targeting traditional competence, soldiers, but instead civilians and cultures around you, millenarianism has a very important function. ISIS beliefs in this regard are antinomian, they're aimed at producing a catastrophic social struggle, believing that you have to create hell in order to arrive at paradise. And the focus is on a divine rather than an earthly audience, for some of them. So you end up with the celebration of destruction and death as something desirable. Recall the fact that unlike the Nazis, for example, ISIS readily publicizes its large-scale killing and also documents, as we saw this morning, its archaeological destruction, as Dr. Lamia pointed out, ISIS are the sources for this. The ISIS project for society 
based on a puritanical view of Sunniism and indeed a sort of twisted form of Sunni nationalism, entails the destruction of places, spaces, practices and communities. Rather than necessarily necessary evils to another end, these measures are somewhat intrinsic. Of course, ISIS is not the first modern terrorist group to anathematize large categories of people and cultures in search of purity. For example, in the 1980s, Gunter Romerzer observed of the Red Army faction, a left-wing terrorist group in West Germany, he observed the following. They recognize only one principle, unconditional consistency. Any compromise they don't even regard as weakness, but as treason. So this is about a left-wing terrorist group in West Germany. So my point is just that uncompromising and destructive beliefs are not uncommon among utopian terrorist groups. For ISIS, however, these beliefs have combined with both the capability and the political opportunity to follow through on an unprecedented scale. Thank you.